0: Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10 x 10 horror watch list featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch list for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. (laughs) Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made. Here we deconstruct their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Deadstream is the feature directorial debut from husband and wife filmmaking team Vanessa and Joseph Winter. Deadstream follows a disgraced internet personality who attempts to win back his followers by live streaming one night alone in a haunted house. But when he accidentally pisses off a vengeful spirit, his big comeback event becomes a real-time fight for his life. Deadstream was a ton of fun. As a horror comedy, I was laughing pretty much throughout the course of the entire film, which was legitimately consistently funny. The movie even manages to pull off some real scares and has a surprisingly well-developed ghost story at its core. Deadstream was a sort of new breed of found footage that could be best described as live stream horror and was shot with a notably clever use of multicams to tell its story. All of that, plus a solid amount of gore and some very fun creature effects, made Deadstream one of my favorites of this year. Don't forget to check Deadstream out on Shudder when it comes out tomorrow, October 14th. This was a really fun conversation with Joseph and Vanessa as we got into how they got Deadstream off of the ground during the beginning of a pandemic, their very insightful festival strategy, and real ghost stories around their production, which was shot at an actual abandoned haunted house. Anyway, and now, please give it up for the writers and directors of Deadstream, Vanessa and Joseph Winter. Joseph, Vanessa... How you guys doing? We're great. How are you, Nick? Doing really good. Doing really good. Um, gotta tell you, I enjoy the hell out of Deadstream. I feel like you guys are kind of inventing a new found footage, although I know that term is verboten. But live stream horror is, uh yeah. I think you, I think you might be onto something here for sure. Thanks, man. No, of course. Because yeah, I feel like we had found footage for a while, and then there was screencast horror. Then there was like er, Zoom horror with host, and there was a couple others, but I don't think we've seen YouTuber live stream horror. So I feel like this is a first of its kind.
1: Dude, I, I hope so, because I, I was a little worried our movie is coming out too late.
2: Yeah, because we, we had the idea several years ago, and at the time there wasn't any screen life kind of genre. It didn't exist. And then by the time our movie was in post, we kept hearing about dash cam and mm. spree and these other things that were like, okay. okay. Every,
1: everybody was kind of riffing off of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: hosts just like those guys got that out so fast. It was so awesome. Yeah. So, yeah we, were
2: pretty, we were pretty bummed. We thought we were too late to market with our idea.
0: No, it turns out now, but you guys filmed during the pandemic, right? Uh, can you talk about what that experience was like? When did you guys decide to shoot and. How did it come together while dealing with all the limitations that were present during COVID?
1: Yeah. There was a little bit of panic at the beginning because it was right as we were fundraising. Okay. Um, And we had some good investor leads and then, you know, stuff started hitting the fan and um, we had, yeah, we like we had some people pull out or like some interest pull out. And so we, we pulled back our budget and shrunk our crew um and that was probably the biggest impact so for most of the days we were under a 10-person crew uh, so we kept things really small and ended up funding at least at the beginning it was just credit cards and some small donations from little investors family members of our producer
2: yeah it was weird because um there were other they're good friends of ours that their projects completely got postponed or, or canceled during production, and we were really fortunate that this idea was conducive to a six-person crew at times, if necessary, and we could keep, like we could still move forward with it, despite being at a time when right. it seemed like
0: nobody else was. Um, so you guys had some initial interest in the movie pre-pandemic, and then that interest went away during the pandemic, and then you, just, you guys just said, fuck it, we're gonna just do it ourselves yeah
2: interest is a strong word like i don't want to give the impression that there were people in hollywood that were interested this is like (laughs) this is like rich people that friends knew that were that had funded things locally before got it it was like that kind of interest where um yeah this kind of movie we weren't asking for a ton of money so it was appealing but then once COVID hit it was kind of like well we're not really
0: investing at the moment anymore. Yeah, I think everybody, risky.
1: a lot of people are putting pauses on investing to kind of see what was going to happen. Oh,
0: oh, man. So was there a yes. point at which you guys just said, we're just going to do this ourselves and then you were off to the races?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we realized, like like Vanessa was saying, we felt like we were racing against the clock because there was only so much time before it seemed like the, the idea would be be done multiple times right. before we hit markets. So we we're just we were just thinking like, what can we do? What can we scale down? Um, how can we do this with life savings from us and the producer and like small investments from family members? And also, how many credit cards can we open? And that's <laughs> the, that's the approach that we took to get the movie made. We also like with this film, we didn't have a path. Like it was like, um, hopefully, festivals will accept it, but there wasn't. We didn't have enough experience with features to know like what would happen to our movie or what we should do with it besides that. But we wanted the, the cost of making this movie to us was an investment in the education of it. Yeah. So we wanted to use Deadstream as a vehicle to learn more about the process, about getting a sales agent and doing the festival thing. And so it kind of felt like even though ideally you wouldn't pay for your own movies to be made it felt like it was totally worth it to us at the time so it was like a film school in that regard yeah yeah totally even though we had gone to actual film school this was like they don't teach you the things i mean you hear this from pretty much everybody that goes to film school they don't teach you some of the things that you really need to know right in order you successfully go produce and sell a film
0: right right yeah they don't teach you things you need to know in regular school either for things in life in general. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> I also think the market is just constantly changing, so it's I think it's just hard to know in general. Like, if if you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a horror feature, like what what can you expect to make? I mean, that's just a big question mark in everybody's minds. Yeah. It's Like even, yeah. even veterans, it's kind of like everything's always shifting.
2: yeah Yeah, and it's really hard i mean when when you know somebody who's sold a film it's like it's really tough to get the information of like how much did they pay for it or like what's your deal structured like and sometimes people will tell you which is helpful but in general it seems like i mean it's not something you can google anymore it used to be there was a sale at Sundance, and everyone was talking about the numbers versus the budget, but that information is not readily available anymore. So it just really seemed like the only way to know that is like, what's $100,000 of a horror movie with creatures going to get in return? And so that was
0: like, so that was the thing we were trying to gain from this above all. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, it makes a lot of sense. Well, can you talk? through the inception of the idea and how the idea came together because I feel like and I just interviewed the guys who did uh, when the screaming starts which is a mockumentary kind of similarly that found footagey sort of horror subgenre style but they basically said that we that they made the movie that they could make at that time and then structured the idea into something that's easily filmable in their case it was a mockumentary but did the idea to do a live stream horror come from either budget limitations, I mean, were you able to like turn limitations into something creative? I mean, that was definitely the
2: genesis of the idea. Um, I, so we had been talking a lot about making a film. We had been several years out of film school and, There was I mean, we had lots of feature ideas, but we were always going back to like, but what's something that no one can say no to? Like, what's something that we could potentially just go out, get the first feature under our belts, but no one can say no. And so that kind of leads you to found footage, even though at that time we love found footage, but it felt like it was there were too many found footage being made that weren't great. Um, So we were kind of skeptical about doing that. But the idea was first a guy in a haunted house, which would be me because we didn't have to pay me anything and be a guy in a haunted house getting really scared of things that were happening off camera. And it was just one camera at my face the whole time. And maybe it could be funny enough or interesting enough to get some attention and be a stepping stone to the next thing. But as oftentimes happens with Finesse and I with ideas, it started to snowball and quickly was not a DIY kind of movie anymore. Um, You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I got fully on board once there was an exploding head and we came up with the (laughs) name Dead which is just so aware, like self-aware that this is going to be a silly movie. Um, And when I use the word silly, I use it with love. Like once there was kind of this challenge of like, let's take a more grounded found footage approach, but see how crazy and over the top we can get by the end. Um, And maybe, yeah, kind of shoot for a found footage movie that ends up as uh, 80s creature feature type feeling. Um, then I started to really be able to feel the tone and it started becoming exciting. Like maybe this is something that I haven't seen a lot of, um, so yeah, I don't know. That's where, that's where it like really started to solidify for me.
2: That's where the, that's where it shifted from just the, what can we do ourselves to the movie we had to make when we were so passionate about it. It was like, okay. Now we've got this Blair Witch kind of thing that turns to Evil Dead 2. We haven't seen that yet, but can we make a movie that justifies that happening? And then um, then we got into like, okay, well, let's talk about the format some more. And Vanessa, in my mind, it was a boredom movie where it's like jump cutting through time of this guy streaming in a haunted house where not a lot's happening until the end. But Vanessa was so determined that it's going to be live stream real time. We can't break that. Um, otherwise it won't be engaging. And I really fought that <laughs> really hard for a while, but eventually she was right. Like if we were going to do some kind of evil dead to, or dead alive kind of aspect to it, it would be a lot more impactful if we got there as though it were a real live stream. So then that became <clears throat> a really fun challenge trying to structure something that would warrant that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My strategy was not give people very much time to think about probability. <laughs> I like if it just kept moving, they'd just be like, okay. Yeah. I was thinking like
2: 80 to 90 minutes is a very short amount of time to have that much happen to a person. Right. And so I was thinking, I mean, people wouldn't buy into that. I mean, they wouldn't follow like, how can you have a character arc where, you know, it's like something meaningful by the end of that. If, their stream just started 80 minutes ago. So I was like really resistant to that,
0: but it turned out to be not really a an issue in that regard. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think a lot of people discount found footage and, th- uh, and anything that falls into that subgenre as being relatively easy to do. But what you guys did with all the multi-cameras and the different perspectives, I mean, it was was a lot of complexity, which I thought made it really, really cool. Parts of it reminded me kind of of Five Nights at Freddy's. I don't know if you ever played that video game where you're looking at different security cameras and you see, you know, monsters and ghosts coming around. But there was a real complexity to the balance of all the different cameras and how you were able to use that to build tension. I mean, there were moments that were, you know, pretty, pretty scary. Can you talk about the technical elements of using all of those tools for storytelling,
1: um, yeah, I think uh, our co-producer Jared Cook, who also was the DP, um, we all the three of us got pretty into the idea of okay, if this character was going to go live like live stream um, himself in a haunted house and make it entertaining, how would he do it, and what kind of gear would he bring, and um, yeah, it did get a little um. It was supposed to be easier filming it with action cameras, um, but it did get almost just as slow as normal filmmaking, uh, normal film uh, narrative I, filmmaking. I would
2: argue it was a much slower production than if it was a traditional filmmaking thing because the tech for action cams, it's not designed to make cinema. And the, the playback, like through Wi-Fi, it's just it's not reliable, so I felt like our production was slowed way, way down, like much slower than it would have been if we could have just set the cameras up where we needed to and just done it the traditional way. Oh, one.
1: always had reliable monitors. Yeah. But I do think that there's uh, there, uh, doing the action cameras brought a certain character to the film. Um, the POV camera is actually two different cameras, so they're on Joseph's head, the character of Sean, there was a GoPro and a DJI Osmo Pocket mounted mm-hmm. um, on top of each other, and so we were able to cut like back and forth between two different camera angles, which I don't think you notice, um, but it does create a different feeling than just a straight up GoPro right. style film. Yeah, yeah, because the GoPro uh,
2: the GoPro has like a hardcore Henry like really cool action aspect to it, but it's not very scary. Super,
1: super wide. But yeah, we needed that. We needed the other lens angle in some scenes to make it scarier. Yeah, so we tried to use the Osmo Pocket as much as we could just to help make it creepy,
2: scary. And also we found that the creatures look way better on that lens too. There was like a, sometimes we had to shoot, we had to use the GoPro for this, but that made the creatures tend to be, you could see the foam latex more and like realize that that it was fake, right? Didn't you?
1: Yeah, the Osmo Pocket's a pretty remarkable camera. <laughs> yeah, oh, all <yeah>? right. <laughs> I don't think a lot of that's not a go-to cinema camera, but it's pretty impressive little hmm. little thing. What was the frame rate that you guys ended up going with?
2: Twenty-three point nine seven. Okay. We wanted it. We wanted it to be as cinematic as we could. We yeah. we figured like if we want to by the end, we can throw some. We can do. We can videoize it um, if it feels like it's a barrier to between the audience and feeling like it's an immersive live stream. But we found at the end that the audience actually appreciated it more as looking more like a traditional movie, and that adding artificial glitches were just super distracting. Yeah, I don't think that's like a rule across the board. It was just that way with Deadstream specifically. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. So the whole sort of ghost backstory, the whole story of Mildred, is that based on any actual truth or any stories or any sort of ghost lore that you guys came upon? Where did that whole story come from?
1: Um, That wasn't based on anything real, I think. I think when we were, like, thinking about if we were to do a live stream ourselves, we just love ghost storytelling. So the idea of a character walking through different rooms and there kind of being a little mini ghost story for each room just sounded fun to us. Like, that's something we'd want to watch. Um, the house itself has its own lore, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, lots of
2: lore. Lots. Yeah. So we didn't know this when we first we're trying to get that house to film in. But since then, we've learned that it's like a local legend. Like, this guy that was actually working on the construction, when we were trying to reinforce the house so that we could film in it, um, he was so scared he wouldn't be there by himself, and he was telling us that he... Now, bro- this is
1: a burly guy. Like, <laughs> this is construction, like... I could take out 10 guys by myself kind of guy. Yeah, he, he
2: was so he was so shaken by it. like he, he was just so uncomfortable there Whoa. because
1: of an experience he had as a teenager.
2: At that so very this, house.
1: At the town he the grew house. up in, yeah. Oh, holy yeah. shit.
2: So he, they broke into it when they were teens, and he said he saw a woman standing in the window in uh, what's the bathroom in Deadstream. It's that window in the bathroom. It's not an actual bathroom. It's just a bedroom but he claims he saw a woman there. And like you can tell when you're talking to him, he 100% is telling the truth, Whoa. at least according to his experience. But that that room is kind of a hot spot. A lot of people have stories there. And then also what we were calling the master bedroom in Deadstream. Um, I think it used to be a kitchen, but a lot of, there were crew members that wouldn't go in there or wouldn't go in there alone. And they would just claim that there's like darkness in there. Holy so shit. it got kind of wild. <laughs>
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: Did you guys experience anything supernatural making the movie? Any weird things um, happen?
1: Yeah, actually. I'm not very paranormally sensitive.
0: Well, I don't
2: think <laughs> I'm not paranormally sensitive either and I don't even know how much like what I think even is paranormal stuff, but I know that experiences were happening to crew members that they 100% believe. But here's the one I will tell you about. So, Jared, the producer, and I—we the way we shot this movie was we did like seven days of principal photography, and then it was some like weekends over the course of the next few months as the creature guy would catch up, and he would you know come up with the next monster. Then we'd go and shoot some more stuff, and we were getting ready. Um, we needed to shoot me in the bathtub for that whole sequence, but the bathtub had been in there with a bunch of water for probably like a couple of months by then, <laughs> it was really, really moldy. Yeah, and so, right. so Jared and I had to go in with masks and gloves and we were cleaning all the mold. And while we were in there, Jared was setting up a camera just so we'd have some cool BTS of like, look what we had to do for this movie. And no joke at all, like this really happened in the background, you see the door, like, swing open really really slowly and it's like the opposite direction of what the airflow would have done to it and it's really really creepy but that's the only thing that i experienced and we have that video we should do something with it soon but anyway it was really disturbing to see especially after how many crew members were telling their stories about hearing a woman singing and you know like that kind of thing holy shit!
1: okay one more uh, one more one more funny story about this Uh, So the house has lots of break-ins because it's so famous. And so one time um, we had to call the police because there was a break-in on our security cameras. This is
2: when we weren't there. This was like Jared was monitoring it from his home.
1: So Jared shows up and pulls in behind the cop car and the cop hadn't gotten out of his car yet. He'd been waiting there for like 45 minutes because he was too scared to go in because of the ghosts. Whoa. Not the people breaking in, but because of the ghosts. So he waited for our producer to show up before <laughs> checking out the break-in.
0: The cop wouldn't go in. That's insane. <laughs> it's
2: really weird filming in a place that uh, crew members are telling you they're too scared to go into certain rooms. It's It's really unsettling.
0: You can't buy that kind of authenticity, though. I mean, I'm sure that eeriness finds its way into the vibe of the movie, which is what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the house—it's a little background on the house. The house obviously is abandoned, and you guys were—were were there any permits involved in getting that house? Because it's—it's—it was basically condemned, right? Um, yeah,
2: it it was abandoned since the '40s, and it's completely off the grid. You could, we had to get electricity to the house somehow, and getting that getting that set up was really, really hard because there was no record from the city of it ever being being connected to electricity. So it's like completely dilapidated, about to fall over. Um, when we found it my friend he did a, a Facebook post asking if anyone knew of any houses that matched kind of what we were looking for and a lot of people pointed to this house but said it will be impossible like don't even try because the owners hate people they will never let anybody use it but we tried anyway and we had to do we had to like pay money for these shady Google like stocking searches where they're like if you give us five dollars we'll give you a phone number or whatever and finally we found someone from the family that had something to do with the house, and they directed us to the right person. We had them sign a permit, and uh, but there was, <laughs> it was like it's so complicated with how many people have ownership over the house. So there was this warning about like, yeah, you can film here, but just know there's a there's an uncle, <laughs> there's an uncle that might show up. Oh, he's a fucking at some uncle. Point. <laughs> 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 um, like if he knows about. <laughs> So anyway, I probably shouldn't say very much about that. But like we were always on edge that even though we had paid some money and we had the paperwork, there was there's like, okay, but what if the people that aren't cool with it show up and shut us down? But it ended up being a really great experience. And we ended up being there for months and months longer than we had originally told them. Yeah. And they were like, so cool about it. So cool. Oh, well, that's cool.
0: did you have to build any sets in there or was everything basically for the most part, you know, give or take as is.
1: Yeah. When we first walked in, like my heart almost broke because it was so dilapidated. Like it was almost perfect, but the upstairs didn't have any interior walls anymore. Oh, okay. Um, so we did end up having um, hiring a contractor to come in and help us Uh Reinforce it, and then put up some walls. And then our production designer did an amazing job. Some of those walls are just made out of cloth, um, but they look yeah. like they look like the rest of the house, and yeah. so ended up working out great. But we did do quite a bit of building on the second floor.
2: Yeah, because like honestly if you look at the pictures, it's not even the same house. Like there was tons of Adobe built up over the decades and it's just completely trashed with junk. And um, it was, uh, we had to, I I had a corporate job at the time and my entire team used their service day. They were allotted one service day, whereas like PTO that didn't count against your PTO. Mm -hmm. They all volunteered to come and clear the house for us. Oh, nice. <laughs> so yeah, it was nice! Like a department-wide <laughs> service project. They just—they all went and just cleaned, like hauled off really heavy junk and swept the glass up. And we just—it was—it was actually like super fun. Anyway, the—the the house now um, in Deadstream, as it appears, is like not the house that we walked into. And even now, if you were to go in, we had—I mean, the cloth walls weren't going to make it very long. So it's probably like almost back to that original condition.
0: Oh well. Wow. So the movie was, I mean, as a horror comedy, it was really, really funny. I mean, it was laughing out loud throughout the course of it. It also got legitimately scary. I mean, it was scarier than it kind of had to be, which I thought was great. Um, and uh, I was wondering, what was the, what was your approach to the balance between the horror and the comedy? So here's, so
2: I think it was on your show. This was on my mind when we were getting ready to shoot this. I think on your show, you have talked about an 80-20 rule. Right. Where it's like 80 scary, 20% funny, and I was having a hard time reconciling that with the script that we wrote because it's like, it was kind of flipped. It was like 80% funny, yeah. 20% scary. And so I was I was really self-conscious that we weren't going to end up with any kind of scares and it would just be like silly fun. But it was Vanessa that really, like I had expressed that. I don't think this movie wants to be scary anymore, like with the the version that we have. But she was so committed that if we're going to make a movie that's exploring an abandoned house like this and it isn't scary, we have massively failed. So, we, like, we, we really took that seriously, there were a few sequences that we took a lot of time trying to make sure that they hit just right, and she was right, she was totally right to do that because we do get that feedback that it actually is genuinely scary and I was, I was very surprised, I'm still surprised, like, hearing you say that surprises me now.
1: Yeah, I think, I think for me there was a lot of trial and error. I think it's like once you, once you start getting into it, you start to feel like, man, I love this joke so much, but we have to cut it <laughs> <laughs> or people aren't going to get into the scene. And so, I, I mean, it's probably obvious to a lot more, I mean, to people who are more seasoned. But for us, it was a lot of, a lot of learning and making decisions where we maybe at least had to choose a priority for the scene. I mean ideally you're you're hitting the comedy and the horror yeah. every time but I think that there was kind of this this moment of us realizing well we need to choose the priority like are we preserving the joke under all circumstances or are we going to try and preserve the scare yeah um but I think it feels risky like I think it feels like when you're cutting some of your favorite jokes and you're and you're really trying to to make it scary or mm-hmm. vice versa um And obviously, like, we took a lot of swings and not all of them land, but I'm glad that enough of them did, that it's working for people.
0: Yeah, the device I loved that I thought was really scary was when the viewers would send in, like, images and videos of, like, ghosts that they would see on the other cams that he wasn't necessarily monitoring. I thought that that was really, really cool. And then he would check and you would see the kind of ectoplasmic figures moving around. I mean, it was, yeah, that was awesome. is really really cool that's cool i'm
2: glad that was working for you the things that surprised me the most is um like getting bit in the crotch that (laughs) i mean that makes people jump but i did not expect that to be a scary part but it gets like some big screams in the theater so anyway i i feel it's been kind of fun seeing what people what scares people yeah after that you know we can guess all we want what's going to be scary but the audience has basically decided what's funny, what's scary, and a lot of it has really surprised us.
0: Yeah. Well, I also love that, I mean, there's a lot of found footage movies deal with ghosts, but you guys deliver the ghosts, but also deliver the creatures, which was awesome. And I heard you on a previous interview talking about how you grew up on House and House 2 and The Gate, and those were all my childhood go-tos. They were all, you know, fantastic. Mm-hmm. House 2 is fantastic. Nobody I'm talks the about it. I'm fierce defender of House 2. I yeah. know that it's not...
2: Popular, uh, but I I love House Two so much. It really shaped my
0: horror personality a lot. It has a street shark in it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. And the whole the cowboy figure. I mean, I never saw House Three. Oddly enough, somehow, but House Two. I is, haven't seen it beyond House Two. Yeah, you can kind of stop at House Two, but uh, but yeah, you guys <laughs> really delivered on the creatures. Can you talk about the the creature design and the the makeup portion of this and how all of that came together?
1: Um, yeah, I think we kind of found our soulmate with Troy Larson, who is a local creature designer. Um, he brings a lot of personality to his creatures, which yeah. we love. There's a lot of person, like, I don't know, facial fun, I guess. Like they're scary, but they've also got that edge of we're having a good time. Is that a good description? Yeah, I don't
2: know I, he totally
1: got it. But they have like just an overall great design that ended up fitting really well with our tone. Um, and he also just had, he just also had some crazy bonker ideas that, um, we incorporated. Like, he would take things to the next level. And we have this reoccurring finger that gets shoved up our main character's nose. Yep. And he came up with a mechanical finger that actually supernaturally stretches. Mm. Um, this was, like, after So telling- that's, like, an example of his, of a brainchild of Troy.
2: Yeah, but, like, this is after telling him, like, okay we only have this much money to give you, which wasn't very much at all. What do we need to cut in order to do this? And he was like, ah, we can't cut it. I'm excited about this version. We'll find a way, I'll find a way. Wow. And then um, he came back to us with the gag like, We were saying we would like a long finger, a long, nasty finger. And he comes back with, "Okay, but I have this gag where it stretches and you don't see that in movies anymore. So I really want to do it. I know it's more time, but like I just think it's worth it. And so that was like that's what he brought to the movie. He put everything into it and also our makeup artist, Michaela. She, Michaela Kester, she did, she had that same kind of approach to the prosthetics that she was doing and the design of the things that she was in charge of. And it also, it congeals really well together. We got really Um, lucky.
1: She's just like an awesome horror nerd, like so passionate. And I think that authenticity comes through because it's so many hours of makeup. Like she was just there from like early call to the last person out. And even with the wound makeup, all the like the gross out gore and blood, yeah, that's, that's Michaela.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That's what you want is somebody, you give them an idea and they say, well, I can actually take that to a whole new level.
2: Yeah, and that's what we got. I mean, if you—if people could see the passion, I hope this comes through in the movie, but it was made with such passion from everybody. There were crew members we didn't know before working them with them on Deadstream, and every single crew member was bringing so much passion to it that, far exceeded what we were paying them to be there. It was was really amazing. We're so fortunate that we had that experience with this movie.
1: Good example is one night, it was like well over a 14 hour day. It was a night shoot. And we were telling the crew to go home while we finished up the scene in the bathtub. And we had an exploding head that wasn't exploding the way that we wanted to. And the whole crew, just everybody got so into it, where we were piecing it back together to re-explode it. And the costume designer was, like, coming in with safety pins, and Michaela was, like, remixing brains out of just random stuff, because wow. we were out of brains. Like, yeah. No, people wouldn't It, go it, was, it was very, it was yeah, it was so very, good. very collaborative, so it was fun.
0: Well, when you make a movie like that, it's just a fun house of effects and like the vibe on set must have been so good that people didn't want to leave. I mean, it being, it's your first feature, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about how you were able to create that kind of a vibe on set? Because I feel like it's rare because I mean, especially the tail end of a 14 hour day, people want to go home. You know, your passion starts to kind of dwindle when you go a number of days without sleep but it sounds like you guys were just having a blast on set while working hard, while giving the shots, while doing all of this. But can you talk about how you were able to create that environment? Don't you feel like they created that environment?
1: Yeah, I was <laughs> like, that's hard to take credit for. It took us a, it took us a few days to get into our flow okay. um, because it was such an unusual, unusual shoot with the cameras and the way we were shooting stuff. And the conditions weren't always great. Sometimes, I mean, we shot when it was really, really hot. Um, in that house, which was hard for the effects team uh, and everybody else. <laughs> but I think uh, I think it may have been a combination of just doing something fun and maybe the stuff that was going on with COVID where this was kind of like another little just social pod, mm-hmm. I guess you could call it. Because yeah. everybody was so strictly isolating. Um, it just felt like, yeah, we got... Were kind of forced to get really close
2: because there weren't very many of us and the i i think that um i mean i thought i was stressing everybody out constantly because i was wearing that um, exoskeleton camera rig and i had that camera thing strapped to my head and it was like really stressful doing that and trying to direct with vanessa at the same time and i just like after each day i would think oh man i gotta chill out tomorrow i gotta like i gotta make sure that i'm contributing to a, like a good environment. But when I would talk to other people, they didn't really seem to notice. They were bringing positivity every day and telling us like how funny things were, even though I was like certain that we just made, like th- these days were some of the worst days of their lives. They were showing up <laughs> talking about how great stuff was turning out from their perspective. So we were just really fortunate with that. It really kept me going through the,
0: I mean, the grueling stuff that we had to do over the course of the film. Wow. That's really, really cool. And it being your first feature, were there any major challenges that you encountered on set that kind of required you to come up with solutions on the fly? I mean, what were some of the challenges associated with making this movie that you didn't necessarily anticipate?
1: Um, The thing that always comes to my mind is the first day. Mm. just not... Even though we did a lot of tech tests, it's still the like how slow the schedule is going to be and having to come to terms that we were going to have to add shooting days. That was one of my biggest unexpected obstacles.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me, the thing that was unexpected was, like we had done lots of rehearsal with me because our script, we knew that it could not be improvised at all, or it was a very, very boring movie. We had done what we call day stream, which was at the house or in our house, just during the day with me doing the Sean monologues. And we just started like, we started, refining it in that process. But then when we actually started shooting it, stuff like jokes that were slaying in our writer's group that got huge, huge laughs were just not funny. Like they Mm. were coming out of my mouth just so the opposite of funny. We were coming across that issue a lot. And at the very beginning we were so committed to the joke because we're like, oh, this joke slayed at writer's group. We can't, we have to find a way for me to say it right. But after a few days, if something didn't come out of my mouth right in the first like two takes, we were looking for something else because mm. we had to go reshoot some of those things that we were too committed to okay. um, just to make the movie work because it did not seem like a real person. Um, oh. And anyway, that was something that I didn't expect that we had to adapt to that. I, I mean, we'll never do that again. Like we just did a segment for VHS 99, which is a comedy. And that kind of thing was applying there too, because of what we did on Deadstream. Like if a joke isn't working and the dialogue's not there, it doesn't matter if we thought it was good on the page or if other people were reacting to it. Like what matters is it's not working right now. So right. we just toss it right. out, trying to come up with
0: something new. And what was your writer's room or would you um, say writer's room, writer's group. Or
2: writer's group? We, had a, we had a writer's group. Yeah. Oh, how just, did that work? Uh, some
1: yeah. We just, uh, we have a, kind of unofficial group of just writers that we admire and we get together every once in a while and read each other's stuff and give each other feedback um and and yeah i think they're people that we respect so it's a good test place that's where we feel like okay if if at least it's working for them then we're like we're at least at a good starting place
0: Hmm. yeah oh that's great it's really smart to have that Cause yeah, I mean you you addressed something I was gonna ask is how much was improvised, and it sounds like very little was improvised. It kinda had very. a free-flowing, realistic, you know, feeling to it, but uh, it sounds like you've scripted everything basically to the letter.
2: Yeah. That's that's a question we get asked a lot, is how much was improv? And my answer is zero. I can't there are things that we rewrote in the yeah. moment, but it's nothing that I would call improv.
1: Yeah, it's weird how like we um getting that feeling of a live stream this is happening in real time like how carefully crafted it had to be Mm. um especially the beginning where we're trying to get the audience into it um i went with a shot list that actually had how long each shot needed to be down to the second um because we just found that people didn't have like there just wasn't patience for somebody meandering around so it ended up just kind of being a weird science where it's like joke needs to happen here, he needs to walk through this room about this fast um or just starts becoming like unfunny and unscary
2: yeah and if we had planned in rehearsal this is 20 seconds to walk across here and then the stopwatch says after the take that this is a minute and 10 seconds then we would just have to completely like rewrite it to where okay sean for whatever random reason runs for a little ways here and makes a joke (laughs) out of it because our our script was 97 pages we didn't have time We knew that this movie had no business being a second over 90 minutes and there wasn't time to shave off those pages before production. So Mm. if the stopwatch was off, then we knew we were screwed. Like we couldn't we couldn't afford for that to happen so that there was a lot of retooling in the moment, but not improvising.
1: Yeah, the scene that we um, probably was the most difficult was just him walking to the house and breaking in. Huh. Like, it seems like such a simple scene, but we had to establish some interest, like intrigue and mm. getting to the house and setting up a scary mood. And just also that this guy is going to be telling jokes and just also not wanting to let people know, yeah, this guy talks a lot, but we're not going to bore you with him just taking forever to get into the house. Yeah. So we just like we struggled with that scene. We, we rewrote it, reshot it, retimed it recut it probably more than any other part of the movie.
2: Yeah, I know we've talked about this for too long now probably, but I just want to add one thing is that um, in going into it, we thought this, a lot of people that were reading the script thought this is like, because it's a live stream and real time it would only help the believability if like something did take a little too long or like Mm -hmm. a camera was just running you know we show the whole approach that is absolutely not true as soon as you call something a movie Mm -hmm. the audience Mm -hmm. needs it to move and they need it to get to the objective really fast and that's what we found we thought that we were testing a lean version of the movie with a test audience that we put together and it was not lean at all in their minds oh, wow. so we like we ended up like 2x speeding a lot of stuff and we cut an entire scene from it actually after after screening it even though i didn't think that was possible because it's a real time movie but anyway yeah the the
0: pacing is just not what you would expect yeah well on the topic of pacing you direct um you you edited the movie yourselves i believe right yeah yeah I mean, I thought the pacing of the edit was great, and I think that getting hor- getting scares and humor right in terms of pacing I mean they're two very different but probably equally large challenges what were um, what was the editing process like with that in mind with keeping the pacing funny as well as scary because they can kind of run into conflict, but then the movie does have its own sort of pace, and I'm wondering how you arrived at that.
1: Um, we're kind of obsessive with it. We like really, we did a lot of versions. Um,
2: No, I think that it's
1: it's very similar to our writing process, uh, the way we script. So in the edit, we just keep going until something's working or we try and cut it. Uh, I will also give a shout out to our post sound team um, because they brought so much to it once we turned over our edit with the temp sound to them they like really took some of the scares to the next level yeah
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, which helped with the pacing a lot but i think that the test audiences
1: like we sent some remote
2: screeners to friends and then we did a in-person one and that's to me that was the biggest eye-opener to what the pace was or needed to be. Because we were just guessing on our own and each individual scene would be like, we'd think, okay, we're there with this. But once you string it all together, it's not the same. It's a completely different speed. And what we thought was really funny on its own or really scary on its own in the context, just nobody cares. And we would have to go in and retool it. But I think that was our best friend in the editing process, right? I mean, a friend that you hate is really painful showing Something you know isn't there yet to friends yeah. that you want to yeah. respect you. Yeah, um, but
1: man, it's so hard as an indie filmmaker too to get a bunch of people in a room to watch your rough cut. Yeah, I bet, but like so so worth the effort. Yeah, of like I think there's something so valuable about like getting in a like a a room of at least twenty. Do we have twenty people? We had thirty. We had thirty people. Yeah, <laughs> and then you just start to feel it. You start to feel those jokes if they're like. If you if you're missing, if it's not quite coming in fast enough, same with the scares. It's so helpful.
0: And then once you had the movie cut and basically in the can, what was next in terms of getting distribution, getting uh, screen box involved? How did it pick up from there after you guys had wrapped and you know
1: edited? Um, we just started submitting to festivals. Okay. Um, right. Am I missing the step?
2: No, you're right. So we didn't have a distribution plan. Um, but besides just submit to festivals and then hope something comes from it. And we were doing like, uh, film freeway. We didn't have any warm leads at any festival. So we were just like paying the fees and sending it to, um, anybody that we could. And throughout that process, we got a lot of rejections from the big ones, the big fall festivals. But we started putting together this small festival tour that we were really excited about. And then the big one, what we thought was the big one, came through one day where Evram Ersoy from Beyond Fest called Vanessa and was telling her that he wants to play the movie in Beyond Fest. But he also wanted to encourage us to consider maybe trying to do better than Beyond Fest, which would involve like pulling out of the festivals that we had just gotten accepted to and Mm. trying for a different season of bigger festivals. And we did not like that. We're like, no thanks, we'll do Beyond Fest. It'll be great, thank you. We already got rejected from Fantasia and Fright Fest and we just didn't think, okay, why would South by Southwest or Sundance actually accept our movie? But then um, in thinking about it, and er- Evram seemed so sincere in his praise of the movie, we, were, we started asking, like, is it, is, it, is it stupid of us not to take a big risk here? Because this whole movie was a big risk. Everything about it, we put it on credit cards. We took huge swings Wouldn't it be unfortunate if we sold ourselves short and didn't take a big swing with our festival strategy? So we ended up signing with a sales agent that Evram had put us in touch with, and we did that. We withdrew from the fall festivals stuff that we had just been accepted to, and we tried again for the later festivals, and we
0: got into South By. Wow. I feel like there's a huge lesson there. Yeah. Like, don't be so humble with your movie if you get a couple of rejections, but just always, always aim high. It's cliche as it sounds. That's awesome. And
1: yeah, then after. That was s- scary.
0: Though. Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> and then after South by the right people saw it, and then now you're it was right
2: before because the fact that we were in south by gave our um our sales agent license to start sending it to certain distributors so that they could buy it ahead of time and yeah. that's what
0: happened with her okay very cool and what was it like directing writing directing editing this movie together as a married couple what was the collaboration process like for you guys
1: um, it's something we've been fine-tuning for a long time. So we met on a film a film set and we always joke about how we got to know each other while like arguing how to hang wallpaper on a low budget <laughs> student film. So there is like this this nice thing about the relationship where there's a we're comfortable arguing. So that's a nice shorthand because you can mm. kind of really if something's not working, you can just kind of battle it out until you get there. Um, so that's a really nice thing. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. You want to,
2: what's, what's the challenge? Um, like. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just the only life we know. So like, it's yeah. all a challenge, all of, it's yeah. such an emotional process for both of us, but especially, I feel like, especially for me. Um, and so <laughs> I go into the editing and the writing, like, so, uh, I don't know, like emotionally invested. So I feel like, Yeah, I just feel like it's such an emotional process, but that's, like, all we've known, I mean, since we first met each other, so I don't even know what to compare it to.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously there's some fights that, you know, like, I I think most of the time we're similar enough that we, we come to a conclusion that we're happy with. There's always those couple moments where you're just never going to agree. But then there is that aspect of filmmaking with all the highs and lows where, like, you have a horrible first day. It's kind of nice that, like you can hold each other. Like, oh, that was so terrible. I'm going <laughs> to die. Like, yeah, I don't yes, know. Our movie's terrible. I but couldn't they, do
2: it without that support of when <laughs> things are going bad. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't think that there's a solo filmmaker version of me.
1: Um, so I, anyway, I'm really glad that I have Vanessa. But, man. I mean, jo- Joseph's a very – he's being nice. He, he's a very good writer and director on his own. So, he could he could definitely – crank out some good movies. Well, that's the but. first
2: time you've said that.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay.
2: What's that?
0: I just said she was okay too. It was <laughs> just, just a friendly little job. Nice. Nice. Uh, last few questions. So I know you guys had, had gone to film school, but um, were there any resources along the way that you found particularly helpful your filmmaking career either creatively or learning the craft to film any books courses anything like that for me um i actually prepared this there's a
2: of all all the books that they make us read in school i mean nothing really nothing really seemed to help me that much but we came across this book a couple years ago called but what I really want to do is direct by Ken Kwapis. And Ken's not a horror guy, but he's done a lot of episodes of The Office and um, like romantic comedy kind of stuff. And this book was so um, it was such a good memoir of his experience as a director and kind of his value system of like the things that he values on set and with critical reviews. And I think this has been the most helpful to me as a director. Oh, That's great.
1: Yeah, I've got a book called Synclopedia Horror by Kelly Goodner. And it's probably the only one that I reach for off of my shelf um, when I'm writing. It's kind of like whenever I get stuck, it's this book that has um, little sections on quite a few famous horror movies and just breaks them down scene by scene. Whoa! Um, and there's something about looking at like a masterpiece film and seeing somebody's little beat sheet or breakdown of it in the granular that a lot of times will help me like break through, uh, I don't know, some kind of like just but, but we'll whenever, when I get stuck. Story, yeah. yeah.
0: That sounds incredible. All right, I have to, I have to get a hold of that. scene
1: Yes, Sceniclopedia. I think there's a few of them, but this one's specifically for horror. Okay. I
0: yeah, the little that.
1: subtext is every scene of 25 horror feature films.
0: Well, cool. What uh, What's next for you guys? Is there uh, any sequel potential here? I feel like you got your Evil Dead done. Maybe it's time for your Deadstream 2 Dead by Dawn. <laughs> Honestly, like, that was the last
2: thing we wanted to do when we were making it is, um, like, just doing a sequel to it. It just seemed like, where can this even go? But we accidentally got really excited about a potential sequel. So I'm not making an announcement. We're not not there yet, but there is, I mean, it's something we could get really excited about. But um, other than VHS 99 that's coming out October 30th, Mm -hmm. I mean, October 20th on Shutter, two weeks after Deadstream, there's uh, nothing formally ready to talk about yet. Okay, very exciting.
0: Well, but thanks whatever, for asking. Now, of course, yeah, whatever you guys do, I will be anxiously awaiting. And yeah, definitely psyched to finally check out VHS. Um, before we part, any parting wisdom for those aspiring horror filmmakers out there?
1: Uh, because I'm a perfectionist as a writer and an editor, there's I one of my biggest motivators is just getting a script or an edit in front of somebody. Mm-hmm. I think as soon as you do that, you start like stop being overwhelmed by the 100 things wrong with your movie and just picking the five worst ones to fix and that gets a movie made um even if it's not a perfect movie.
2: yeah um and i I agree with her on that. I mean we've learned to. We've learned to roll with something that's good enough rather than the perfect thing that we imagined that it would be. And in the case of Deadstream, I mean, there is there was a really big fix it in post aspect to it. That wasn't our philosophy. I'm just saying there's a reason that it exists because you can fix a lot of problems in post. So um, obviously care about how good your script is. But at some point, you just got to make something and fix it in post. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. It was uh, it was a real pleasure meeting you both and uh, thanks for being on the show. This was great. And congrats Me on Texas. Thank you, Nick.
2: We're huge fans. Thank you so much for reaching out, man. Thank Talk you. To yeah. Nice to meet
0: you. You too. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. All right. Here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Vanessa and Joseph. Number one, filmmaking is the best film school. Deciding to make your first film is one thing, but deciding what to make your first film about is a recipe for analysis paralysis, which is dangerous because it can last for an endless amount of precious time. However, approaching your first movie as strictly educational can be incredibly liberating. Joseph and Vanessa knew they wanted to make a feature and were able to offshoot a lot of concerns about things like the movie's financial success because they viewed the movie as a learning experience and as a way to get crucial skills that would serve them throughout the course of their careers. In the end, they learned a ton and delivered a pretty kick-ass movie in the process. Coincidentally, offloading all of these concerns about your film can even contribute to the likelihood of your success, as you're more likely to be creatively freed up to give your movie the energy and attention it deserves because you're putting less pressure on yourself. Number two, don't sell yourself short. It's incredibly easy to be too humble about your first feature. When they first started submitting Deadstream to festivals, Vanessa and Joseph got some initial acceptances from some smaller festivals and were understandably overjoyed. One of their associates recommended they submit to some bigger festivals, which would have meant withdrawing from the festivals they were already accepted by. They were scared by this decision, but they did it anyway, and in the end, the film got into multiple big festivals, including South by Southwest, ultimately leading to a deal with Shudder. Despite working extremely hard for years and putting everything they have into it, many filmmakers will still sell themselves short on their first feature, as it's easy to be insecure about your lack of experience. Difficult as it may be, try to avoid this trap, as there's usually very little harm in aiming too high, while aiming too low can doom your movie to a smaller existence. Number 3. Create Test Screenings with Peers Everyone knows that when working on your own movie, it's nearly impossible to be completely objective about it because you're way too close to it. One of the best ways to get real feedback in real time is to have an in-person peer screening. In-person screenings are way more effective than just sending people screening links and asking them for feedback because they're less likely to be completely honest with you and you cannot observe them directly that way. Observing the collective reactions of a shared audience is an excellent tool to understand things like pacing and where the laughs and scares are and aren't. Doing so enables you to have this sort of audience empathy so you can see what really works and doesn't work about your movie from the audience's perspective. This will inform your next edit beautifully. Another note, it's best to put these screenings together yourself, as most of the test screenings orchestrated by studios and distribution companies can sometimes be full of the wrong people who can give you unhelpful and misleading feedback. Joseph and Vanessa kept their test screening to about 30 people, which seems like a magic number. Anyway, guys, don't forget to check out Deadstream, streaming on Shudder beginning October 14th. It is a ton of fun and a perfect way to ring in Halloween season. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your filmmaking buddies on social media? Don't forget to subscribe today to hear new episodes right when they drop. And thank you again for listening to The Nick Taylor Horror Show.